From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome. Welcome to one hour of sports, statistics, and business here on Wharton Moneyball. This is Eric Bradlow, Professor of Marketing and Statistics, and I'm joined by my co-host, Professor of Statistics, Adi Weiner, Professor of Statistics, Shane Jensen. Some combination of the three of us and Cade Massey are here every week here on Sirius XM and on Wharton Moneyball, the podcast edition. So how are you guys doing today? Doing well. Very good. Good, good. Well, I'm very excited that uh, we have our show today. Um, In the second half of the show, we have two great guests. We have Neil Payne and Seth Partnow joining us which will make it a great one hour of Wharton Moneyball. So guys, um, when I host something that Adi and I started about a couple of weeks ago, um, I've enjoyed doing this kind of rapid fire round where we go through the world of sports from a statistics perspective. We talk about each topic for two or three minutes. Um, I'll fire questions at you and we'll get your statistical take on this and then we'll kind of move on to the next topic. So why don't we get started? So one of the big events starting very soon is Wimbledon. And just just to level set before I ask, I'll start with Shane uh, with the Wimbledon question. Um, Novak Djokovic, just to level set, has won four straight Wimbledons, um, which is 28 consecutive matches there. Obviously, it's a major. Um, He's obviously the all time winningest uh, men's major champion. He has 23 majors right now. Um, just so you know, the betting odds for Djokovic as of today was minus 165 to win the tournament, which puts him at over 60%. So, Shane, do you ever believe a model where one person versus 127 other players, even if it's as great as Djokovic, in a best of five, seven matches, should he be at 60%? How do you think about Wimbledon and those betting odds? No, I don't. <clears throat> I don't think so. I mean, even an absolutely dominant player. I mean, I don't I, I guess we don't have any hip, historical kind of basis. I, I, I'm sure people aren't favored going into Wimbledon to that degree historically. But I bet you those that are would probably not hit that 60. You, you know, we wouldn't, you know, 10 out of the players that we would kind of consider that dominant going in. I doubt six out of 10 win the whole thing. I think there's just too much randomness and everything like that. It, it, it's it's I think too difficult uh, probably to push a much above i mean have you seen ever something above 50 even i don't think i've ever seen yeah. anybody maybe nadal at the french right at, in his peak but remember mm-hmm. even nadal at the french in his peak was still had against cop, Djokovic yeah. and federer i mean it's not like he had to play nobody he still had to play maybe one or two of the other big three i think the reason is there is no nadal there is no federer you know they're not playing and so and you know say alcaraz well He's, I mean, he just won his first grass court tournament ever, and he's playing the four-time repeat, seven-time champion of Wimbledon. Yeah. So I think you'd have, and and and, and Wimbledon and um, Djokovic just beat Alcaraz pretty easily at the French. So it's hard to really say. Adi, you have any thought about sixty percent to Djokovic? Yeah, I mean, it does seem a little high. I mean, this is that's the Vegas odds. So of course, the Vegas odds are paying you out at higher than they should be. Um, that you'd have to knock down the VIG a little bit, but still more than half for sure. I mean, abundantly more than half. It's definitely because after Alcaraz, who's also a long shot, he's at plus 340, just nobody. I mean, nobody. I mean, they're good players, obviously. It's very, et cetera. But these are all, you know, plus 330, I mean, these are very, very out-of-the-money bets. And the real question is, are those guys as a group – um, able to put something together to beat Djokovic. I think the injury thing is the bigger thing. Than, I agree. And just him not playing well, given his age, it's him beating himself. I, and then, of course, Alcaraz. Yeah, I agree completely with that. I think he could get injured, which he has had an elbow injury in the last couple of years. Mm-hmm. Um, it is best three of five. He does have to play seven matches. But, of course, the guy is the most fit guy on tour. And so that's a hard thing to go with. Um, I'll just say the following. I don't view it as a 128-person uh, tournament. I don't see any chance he loses before the final eight, maybe even the final four. Just there is nobody good enough that he would play as he's, the, by the way, he's the number two seed. Alcaraz is the one seed. All right, guys, let's move on to the next topic. Adi, uh, Adi I'll start with you on this one. So um, areas of the Miami Marlins. I wanted to have him over 400 when I asked this question, but he just dipped below. He's like 0.3994 at this point. But the Marlins have played 79 games, and the guy's batting, let's just call it 400. So my question to you is, forget 400. If you want, sure. 
what probability is he going to hit 400 for the season? But let's even be more realistic. What's the probability you think he hits 350 or higher, which means at least 300 the second half of the season? All right, so I'll go for 95% higher than 300. That's a long uh, for the season, right? 350 oh, for 350. the season. Oh, I'd say he's, he's, I'd say he's about a 90% chance of that. Um, I, think, I think he's about a 90% chance of hitting 300 the rest of the way. Um, I mean, he's that kind of hitter. He's, he looks, although quite honestly, if you're, if you're being quite honest with my regression, I probably should make it more like 80%. Uh, yeah, I was going to, I mean, yeah, yeah. Not, not, not to yeah, interrupt you, Audie, but I kind of, too, you know, <laughs> as you were talking, as you were throwing out numbers like 90, I mean, I, I think conditional, if you could condition on him playing the rest of the season, something like 90 probably is reasonable for him to no, hit no, 300. I mean, you're, you're, but I mean, you know, about- I don't, I don't know how many, how many, you know, really we should condition on, how, does he, does he, is he, you, you have to factor in that, does he get injured before he accumulates enough to actually kind of qualify for enough the batting title? I think that's that. pretty likely that he'll make it because he's a, he's a long way there. You only have to have 400. Um, I think yeah, he's a long way there mm-hmm. already. So he's yeah. really close to that already. I think that's a small probability. I think the, the, the point is the data says that great hitters regress pretty a lot. And the real question is we don't have, you look back at Arias of his previous seasons. He doesn't. He doesn't look like a 400 hitter. He let me ask you more, when he was 400. Let me he ask you, Adi, a more a, specific statistics question. Then Shane, I'd love your follow up. What do you shrink his batting average towards? That's is it. it his historical right. average? Is it the historical average in the league? Is it the historical average of people that have hit 400 the first half? What do we do, Adi? I want to give you the first crack at that. So in the I, that's exactly where I was heading. It's a great question. Um, you don't. You, I'll tell you what you don't do. You don't regress in back to the the historical batting average of all the other 400 hitters. Um, but what you don't do, because they're all different. In fact, most of them have had years of incredible batting averages um, and under their belts, from the Carew to the Gwyns to the Bretts. These guys had years and years of unbelievable batting average performance. Where, the real question, though, so I don't go to the league. That's wrong, too. And I probably wouldn't use his historical average, but that would be my starting point. His historical average plus a little bit, but not too much. Um, because I think he's probably somewhat of he's he, uh, he's listening. He's a growing, getting better player. That's what you see with with young talents. I mean, I don't know how old he is, but but he's not. He's certainly not in his thirties. He's only twenty six. Yeah. So why would I use his twenty two season, twenty three season? So I would probably definitely think of him as about a three hundred hitter and regress him down to that. But I wouldn't say the Rod Crew. Rod Crew's lifetime it was like a three forty hitter, a three thirty five, whatever it is. I'm yeah. not doing that. I'm, um, I'd say 300 is what I'd regress him to. It's like, worth noting that if you were to ha- regress him down to his own historical average, it would be like 328. He's a career 328 hitter. He's only had one season below 300, mm-hmm. and he hit 294. That was in 2021. All right, wow. So, so you're saying – so actually, 350 350- – at the end of the season, maybe conservative. I mean, if he just hits 328 yeah. for the second half, he ends up at 360, 370. Yeah. But, but yeah, that yeah. would be 50 50. So I'd, I'd, I'd give him about an 80%, 80 to 8% chance of 350. You didn't ask me about 400. I would say about 2%. All right. Guys, I want to ask you um, given he's a basically, let's call him a 400 hitter right now. I happen to know what his OPS is. Shane might, maybe he's looking at the data right now. What's a bad OPS for a guy hitting 400? The only reason I asked is I had to look up Teddy Ballgame, Ted Williams. I don't know if you guys realize this. He played 19 seasons, Ted Williams. Thanks for service to our country. Do you know that in 18 of those 19 seasons, he had an OPS greater than one? <laughs> including the first yeah. 17. Yeah. Including, yeah. The first, including the first 17. Yeah, yeah. What's I mean, there's a-, a reason at the Hall of Fame, there's the roll of plaques, and then at the end, there's exactly two statues, and it's Babe Ruth and Ted Williams. Well said, well said. But let me ask you again, what's a bad OPS for a guy that's a 400 hitter? I would say about 900 or maybe 850. It's pretty bad. I would even OPS. say like, no, I mean, I, I would say if it's below eight, it's starting to get weird okay i, well, even, I, I think well, how can you do that your is at least 400 your obp is at least 400 and your slugging has got to be at least 400 too so you can't be less than 800 if you're a 400 hitter right um wow. so if you, so 
I think bad would be about eight fifty nine hundred. Right. I now. thought Arias. At, I think he's at nine forty. Last time yeah. I looked, I thought that wasn't yeah. great. Actually, I just I, I understand. Not good. I shouldn't compare anybody to Ted Williams, but I was just, since he was the last guy to hit 400, I was just wondering what was his OPS in all of his seasons? And I'm like, oh my God, how much greater can you get? Yeah, I, mean, I think what, what you'd want is almost somebody more like, like, I don't know, like Ichiro or something like that, where he, you know, because, you know, Ted Williams hit a lot of bombs. I mean, he was, you know, also yeah, a sure. power hitter in <laughs> yeah. addition to being obviously a guy who can get on base. How do we just like, face it? If yeah, Ted Williams hadn't served in the military, he would have had 700 home runs, 4,000 hits, and, you know, he would have been statistic by every met. He was already the greatest hitter of all time, but he would have certainly been recognized as the greatest hitter of all time. He yeah, Ichiro is probably, probably, I mean, again, I don't, I, I'm not going to attach the word bad to Ichiro, but Ichiro had a career batting average of 311, career OBP of 355, career OPS of 0.757. Wow. Right. Yeah. That's not about great. as bad as it gets. Well, again, not great. It's different. It's it's certainly different than the Barry Bonds, Ted Williams, Babe Ruth kind of type of line. But somebody who gets on base at like, uh, I mean, when you say something not is not great, 355 OBP by any measure is great. Right. Career? Of course it is. Yeah. 355 OBP is great. Listen, great hitters. But one thing you, you have to put keep in mind here, I mean, babe, uh, Ted Williams hit 37, 38 home runs in the area at 406 um, and walked like 160 times or something ridiculous like that. But part of that, of course, is that Ted Williams has walked around, right? You know, this that was the philosophy, certainly, back then. Today, pitchers know better. They Everybody kind of understands that walks are damaging. Um, I think that there was a mis, misestimation of the damage done by a walk, particularly at the start of an inning. Mm-hmm. And they would walk, they would walk around um, uh, Williams when, when today's pitchers would, would go after him. And so I think it's um, some of that. I mean, they did that with bonds, of course, right. They walked him just oh, bonds is a whole nother level. Yeah. Bonds, by the way, yeah, had the highest, highest two or three um, uh, OBP. You know, uh, yeah. He had the OPS. OPS. Like, he had the highest Two or three highest. The only people in the top ten are Babe Ruth, Ted Williams, and Barry Bonds. And Barry Bonds has That's the it. top two or three. But yeah, with the intentional walks, it is worth noting. I mean, those were so. I mean, even Ted Williams' worst, like highest season for intentional walks, he was intentionally walked thirty three times. That yeah. would be like in Barry, the twenty fifth percentile of Barry Bonds' right. season. He was walked <laughs> one hundred and twenty times one year. Yep, guys. <laughs> all right, in the, spirit, in the spirit of baseball, um, Shane, I'll go to you. I'm going to give you a sequence of numbers. You tell me what you think this sequence of numbers is. Ready? Mm-hmm. Here's the sequence. Three, two, three, two, seven, three, five, two, one, three, four, two, two, one, five. Any guess what that sequence is? It sounds like runs. Earn, I, I'm going to say runs given up in an Ot- uh, Otani start. Okay, that's great. It's not that. It's close, but it is runs. Adi, any guess? I don't know. I'm it's the gonna... number of runs the Yankees have scored in this sequence of games ah. since Aaron Judge has been out. And yeah, yeah. I just want to repeat this again. One, two, Great three, pitcher. four, five, <laughs> six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Eleven of the 15 games I just mentioned, the Yankees scored three runs or fewer. So Shane even mentioned this last week, I think, or the week before. Shane, is this a way we should be thinking about computing the MVP which is, you know, you. I think you made the stat, like, in the games that he played, it was like 4.7 or 4.8 runs that the Yankees scored, and when it's 3.4 or something like that, when he doesn't play Aaron Judge. Or you said it, or one of us Theoretically, said Theoretically, I mean, yes, theoretically, the MVP should kind of be defined as what this team does, I guess, runs run scored, wins, whatever, however you want to define the outcome. How much, how many runs this team scores with this person in the lineup versus out? I just... You, you, you rarely, you can't get the actual observed values of that unless the player's out like, you know, a big chunk of the season. Then they, you know, they can't be MVP because they miss a big chunk of the season. It's like, you know, again, counterfactually, that would be what we would love to kind of look at. But in actuality, you can't, that's not a way you can actually calculate MVP, unfortunately. Well, it's interesting because, no, you can't do that, but it's a great, Great um, dichotomy that you set up here, Eric, because the war calculations of the MVP calculation, historically, 
it was much closer to what you're thinking about. Like, what value does this guy bring to this team and on the field? And, in fact, many players weren't even considered for the MVP if the team didn't do well. The team wasn't a competing team. They just were undercut for the MVP. Do you mean, like, prior to the 2000s? Yeah, prior. Yeah, historically. Like, like Ted Williams, speaking of, was was not even – competitive against DiMaggio in his 406 batting average year of 1941 because the Red Sox did they give it to any non-Yankee before like 1960 yes they did quite frequently yes yes (laughs) you guys on the Dodgers (laughs) you guys on the Dodgers won a couple here and there I'll have to check that out (laughs) (laughs) let's let's just not fall for this shit right now anyway (laughs) but uh, Bill James has a great article where he actually talks about the distinction he talks about Judge versus Altuve and he says you, you know this war thing he said, you can't give out war to, to, to wins that weren't earned, right? You should look at how many wins above replacement the team got and then go about dividing them up rather than just sort of doing it in this sort of theoretical construct on an, almost like an average. Oh, remember me well, but it's, 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 Sorry, go ahead, Shane. Go, please go ahead. I mean, but, but again, like any team that's below, like, like so basically any team that is below their expected wins above replacement for a season cannot have an MVP almost by definition, right? Because that you, you're, you're only that, allowing that. them to partial out their excess wins above expectation or above replacement. Oh, above yeah. so replacement team right. wins 40 games. So Shoei and Tawny couldn't win MVP this year. Uh, or well, no, because they, they actually have a lot of wins above replacement. Replacement is like the Oakland A's. But let's say again, like, right. So, yeah, I mean, it is. I, I mean, I think we could philosophically go back and forth on this a lot, um, you know, but like, basically, I, I don't like the idea that I mean, I like the idea that somehow, you know, the outcome should be factored in. But uh-huh. to knock a person out of MVP contention because his team is not contending, especially given that the kind of you know, the, the most of any one player can contribute is a small part of the, you know, kind of the performance of a team. Um, so let me, Dottie, let me ask you a question before we move on from this topic. You used to mention how many runs like is a win? Like how many runs is like for a team? Isn't there a conversion? Yeah, I was going to I was going to say 10. I assume. All right. Well, so just, just, do, just do the following. I, you guys criticize me. I'm ready to be mercilessly criticized. If the Yankees score 1.5 <laughs> less runs when Aaron Judge plays times 160 games, roughly, that's 240 runs. You just said 10 wins, uh, 10 runs is a win. So Aaron Judge is worth 24 wins? No. <laughs> <laughs> Why no, not? Yeah, I mean. Why not? I mean, our listeners on Morton Moneyball here want to know why my envelope calculation is stupid. Yeah, because it needs to be regressed substantially back to the mean. When Iron Judge has been playing this season, he's been playing ridiculously good, probably at about a 15, 16, maybe 17 win pace. And when he when he isn't been playing, um, it's been the Yankees have been horrifying. So that's not right. So my calculation's so wrong bad. because he's played. We can't assume even if he was playing that he would be playing at the extraordinary no, pace. Oh, no, no. And I think he God, he's even exaggerating what he was playing at prior to that. He, I think right. he had like 16 home runs in May. I mean, that's ridiculous. He had an amazing... Like, well, his, his OPS was around one. Yeah, it was a right? little... No, and we've got one. players right now, like position players that have an OPS around one, currently have about four wins in the... Uh, four war in the bank. Like yeah, Acuna and Franco. He had 16 home runs in one month. I mean, that's just ridiculous. That's not, that's not that doesn't happen, but people don't do that for no, a I, it's not, That's an I extreme. Think, oh, oh, okay, I, I guess the OPS does factor in how frequently he does Yeah, it's only one kind. I mean, but it's, yeah, but it's, it's only one. I think your point is, I'm making, a, I'm making a stationarity assumption that's not fair to me. Mm-hmm. And so he's not going to do that. Um, by the way, <laughs> we're here on Wharton Moneyball, the uh, podcast and Sirius XM edition. This is Eric Bradlow, professor of marketing and statistics. And I'm here with my co-hosts today, professors of statistics, Shane Jensen and Adi Weiner. Guys, I'm going to read you, and I intentionally left off the name. I'm going to read you the performance of a golfer for his last 15 tournaments. And you tell me who you think it is. but And also tell me, do you think this is a pretty damn good performance? I'm like, there's no wins here. Tie for 11th, 10th, 20th, 31st, 13, 10, 15, 14, miscut, 6, 9, 5, 4. What do you think? Pretty damn good season, right? Yeah. Yep. Better than I've done. 
Yeah. <laughs> it's um. By the way, it's Ricky Fowler, by the way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So when people talk about a guy who was, I hate to say it, almost out of the PGA a couple of years ago, this guy has really turned this around. But I was just thinking, you know, maybe I'm using an arbitrary cutoff, but of his last 15 tournaments, like 12 of them, he's been in the top 15. I mean, the guy's playing extraordinarily well. Could we just use a binomial calculation to say, let's just say every golf tournament has roughly 100 players. Top 15, let's just put a 0.15 probability on that. We have 12 heads out of 15 coin flips with a 0.15 probability. And shit, that's sounding pretty damn rare to me. How yeah. far, Shane, I'll start with you. How far off is that calculation that I'm Yeah, doing? I mean, I, I don't think, I, I think that get, probably gets you most of the way there. I'm trying to think of kind of ways that like that, some of the assumptions of your calculation are violated. One way that could happen is, you know, during the calendar year, let's say, you know, a particular golfer like Ricky Fowler, it does does extraordinarily well in a particular type of course or type of, you know, sort of like a situation that only happens over a two month period. Like he 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 does amazing in the summer and doesn't do well. Otherwise, you can kind of that that would be an example of sort of like that, that where you might get that streakiness, you know, like not through the, you know, like extra kind of streakiness built in that obviously your binomial calculation is not going to factor in there. But but otherwise, I don't know. I, I mean, you know, you could kind of make an argument for non-station. I don't know how much non-stationarity, you know, you kind of believe there is in golf talent, whether he just kind of flipped a mechanical switch and now this is his talent for the foreseeable future, or whether this is just a particularly hot run on his behalf or on his part. Adi, any thoughts or criticisms to this calculation? Yeah, my guess is I don't like your your 15%. I mean, he's got to be better than your average player in the, in the you know, in the tour. No. He certainly wasn't before. And this gets to Shane's point about potential non-stationary. So guys, we only have about two minutes left. I want want to go to baseball and give you the last uh, leadoff hit here, Adi. I just looked at a stat and I can't believe it. How the hell did Freddie Freeman get 300 home runs and 2,000 hits? So Adi, and you know, we only have about a minute and a half here. Is he going to be our next Eddie Murray, Rafael Palmeiro, Willie Mays, Hank Aaron? You know, there's not that many. 500, 3,000 hit guys. Is Freddie Freeman the next one? He's 33. Well, I guess the honest truth is I probably have to bet against it um, because longevity isn't what it once was. Um, you know, 33 is, is I think, older than it once was for a variety of factors, which we can spend a whole show discussing why. Um, but he's he's the best case for it, right? Without a doubt. I mean, this guy has been doing it year in and year out for many years always hitting above 300 or at least close to it, knocking in a lot of runs, getting a lot of hits. This is, this is your traditional baseball player of yesteryear. And he's the, and he's the only one sort of rolled over into the, into the present day time. Well, I mean, I will sort of say, I mean, Paul Goldschmidt's about a year older has like maybe 25, 30 more home runs, but like maybe 150 less hits. So I think Paul yeah, Goldschmidt, not- you, you know, I mean, I, I think that's kind of the, you know, relatively, relatively comparable. I, I think both of them, if they can kind of get like five or six more years out of their career, I mean, which is chancy for Paul uh, Goldschmidt are, are, you know, that that that's Hall of Fame level right there. I was but, just going to ask you oh, in our last few seconds, I was just going to ask you, Shane, you and I talk about, we all talk yeah. about the Hall of Fame quite a bit. You think Paul Goldschmidt's a potential Hall of Famer? Certainly. Oh, yeah. If he goes above 400 home runs and he gets, you know, in, uh, let's call it well above 2,500 hits, that, that seems Hall of Fame to me, no? Yeah, he's like, and he's, I mean, if you want kind of more of an omnibus measure, he's like at r- around 61 war now. Another 20 war that he could get over a few seasons would definitely get him there. All right, guys, so this has been more. the uh, first half of Wharton Moneyball. We have uh, Neil Payne and Seth Partnow in the second half. So everyone, please stay with us and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to the third quarter here on Wharton Moneyball, the one-hour edition here on Sirius XM and the podcast edition. Again, this is Eric Bradlow, Professor of Marketing and Statistics, and I'm joined again today in the second half by my colleagues, Adi Weiner and Shane Jensen. I've always said, guys, one of the best things about our show here, Wharton Moneyball, is that we get to interview people that are actually doing analytics, either with sports teams, writing about it, kind of doing work in the field. And today is no exception. As a matter of fact, 
you know, we've always said if there was a fifth host to Wharton Moneyball, it would certainly be the person joining us now, and that's Neil Payne. I think everybody knows Neil's the former sports editor for 538. He's got his own sub stack now, which actually I get stuff all the time, which is great to read. And he's also a great follow on Twitter at Neil underscore Payne. Neil, welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Hey, thank you for that intro, Eric. It's uh, it's nice to be known. Is that, is that sort of like the fifth Beatle? <laughs> uh, if the coin that comes with it is the fifth Beatle, you can absolutely, well, let me just say, you know what we get paid. So therefore it's all good. You can, you can be the fifth host of Wharton Moneyball. But actually, Honestly, yeah, you're, you're, you're e- welcome to an equal share of the royalties that we currently receive. <laughs> all right. But well, we're short on time here. Let's move on to the, so one of the things that, you know, Adi has been talking about to all of us for the last nine plus years that we've been doing our show is the highly predictive power of payroll on winning percentage in baseball. As a matter of fact, I forget, Adi, how much you said each like million dollars of spend is in terms of a win. But this season just seems different, Neil. You know, when we look at the teams that are doing well, and we don't have a small sample size, we're basically at the halfway point of the MLB season. What are you seeing in the season? And why don't you think this season is going to, I'll call it, economics chalk? Yeah, so I looked at this, uh, looking at the correlation between a team's payroll rank and its record through around about 80 games into the season, uh, its ranking there. And I found that, although, like you had said, the trend of the correlation between those two things was going up, especially during the era of multiple wild cards per league, so going back to 2012. Uh, but this year, it has fallen off a cliff, uh, and it's the lowest uh, correlation between those two variables since at least 1996. That's as far back as I went, that's the first full season after the strike. Uh, And so it's driven by the fact that at the top of the league, you have teams like the Rays. Well, you always have the Rays, but then you have uh, the Diamondbacks. They're 21st in payroll, and they're one of the sort of breakout teams of the season. The Orioles are doing well. They have the second lowest payroll. And then down at the bottom, you have the Mets, of course, well-publicized kind of flop. The Yankees are sort of treading water. They're they're doing a little bit above 500, but sort of without Aaron Jones. Judge, who knows what's going to happen with that? The Phillies have started to turn it around recently. They're third in payroll, but had spent most of the season below 500. So you've got these cases of, you know, teams that you wouldn't expect at the top based on uh, payroll, and it is a break from tradition. And a lot of people are attributing that, or at least I saw a story from Jason Sark, who I really like at the Athletic. He attributed it to. Well, these low payroll teams uh, have built themselves for these new rule changes that are in in the game this year. And there may be something to that. There are some shared traits there in terms of, you know, taking advantage of those rules. But look at a team like the Guardians. That was a team that on paper should have had had a great year based on, you know, all the the things that they would have taken advantage of uh, on the new rules. They've been one of the more disappointing teams. So I don't know if it tidally fits into a narrative, which is sort of interesting for us because we're all about sort of unpacking the complexities. Well, let me ask before I let Shane jump in, just one quick follow-up. Has some have you ever done this calculation or has anybody else ever done this calculation with what we could call effective payroll, which is Aaron Judge is out. So I understand his salary is there, but he's not playing. So do you think you would get the same Let's call it, lo- I mean, it would be lower, it, it, but has anyone ever done this calculation looking on a game by game basis and who's actually playing? Well, so Spotrack, the site that does all of the contract data, they have a metric that looks at injury list uh, money lost, I guess, to players yep. for days that they're on the injury list. So you could actually back that out. I haven't seen anyone do it, but theoretically, you could back that out of a team's payroll to get what you call the effective payroll. And I do think the correlation there would be uh, you know, stronger, but I don't think it would get you all of the way or even most of the way to the levels that we were seeing a couple of years ago. Yeah, you mentioned that, you know, you kind of speed is part of the kind of equation of the, how the new rules are supposed to kind of change, uh, change baseball. It is worth I, I mean, I know you kind of I think you're it sounds like you're a little bit um cautious about how much of uh, the the success we're seeing is, is attributable to that. But it is notable that, you know, the top three teams in stolen bases this year are the Rays, the Reds and the Diamondbacks. And I think I I, I mean. We, I don't know if we're retrospectively saying, oh, well, that's, you know, that, I mean, that's part of their success and that's why they're succeeding. I, can you speak at much to the extent that these are particular teams that prospectively ahead of the season, we could have actually said, no, these are teams that, have, you know, are trying to be fast or trying to kind of play a different style of game? 
Yeah, I think the, the, the one way that that would kind of manifest itself, especially as it relates to payroll, is just like speed had probably been undervalued in the game for a long time, at least speed on the base pass. Like we know defense is valued and that there's a lot to, uh, especially in the outfield, uh, speed as it pertains to defense, but probably just like the ability to steal bases and take extra base and all those things. Those are now being enhanced. And so maybe it's almost like a money ball in a way that we didn't think of money ball being, you know, 20 years ago of like, hey, it's a market in a efficiency that they've now made the bases bigger and put in rules about pickoffs. And so now speed is, is an undervalued trait. And so it could cause you to be better than your payroll would predict. But again, I think it's kind of at the margins, maybe like you look at a team like, um, you know, uh, the Braves, they're 12th in payroll, they're 12th in base running. The Rangers uh, increase their payroll, but they're not in the top five, and they're 17th in base running runs added. Uh, the Angels are having a pretty good season. They have a lot of payroll, but they're 29th in base running runs added. So I don't know that it kind of maps perfectly either, but it probably does matter at the market. Well, one thing that might map more than – because speed here maybe isn't like an actual design feature of these teams, but speed is a proxy for youth. And you yes. certainly the, the the cheap teams that is the one you know secret sauce that they have to combat high payroll is youth. So maybe maybe we're just sort of seeing a kind of a youth revolution by some of these teams. Yeah, the Rays are so, the second youngest team, so that that yeah. really has played a role, I think. So let me throw out a couple of facts and and to spur the conversation. Uh, I have looked at at correlation between payroll and winning for many years. It's actually the opening lecture I give to my Wharton Moneyball Academy students, um, which is starting next next month. And on a, it's interesting because on a yearly basis with baseball, it's actually pretty low. The correlation is about 0.4. But if you average that over 10 years, the correlation is very high. It's like 0.8. So no team, I guess, other than the Oakland A's, um, consistently wins year in and year out, although they don't win championships. And now that now Billy Mead isn't there anymore, so it's, you can throw that out. Um, uh, without having a lot of money. Um, but on a yearly basis, you do get a randomness. But one of the things that, that this year is really particularly interesting about baseball is it's not, it's, it, yes, it's teams that don't spend much, but it's also teams we didn't expect to see at all. They're here. And that's the real surprise. I mean, that the Rays are doing well. Yeah, okay. They don't spend money and they're always doing well. Okay, not a surprise there. But all these teams, where where'd they come from? And how, why, why did we miss it? And, and is it the stolen base thing that we missed because of the rule change? Or is it that we just, you know, the Mets aren't getting any value out of their expensive players? Or is it, is what's, what's happening to explain the, the, the surgence of these, these surprises? Yeah, I think that that's more the case is like you see teams like the Mets where they've spent a bunch of money, especially, you know, they have high price pitching staff, they're seem like they're constantly injured and or not doing well. You know, they had that disastrous uh, late inning a couple days ago that I think underscored some <laughs> of the problems that they've had. Uh, and and so I do think that those sort of super team flops have, have played a role. And then you flip it around and you look at a team like the Cincinnati Reds. That was a team that nobody thought was going to go, uh, you know, on the run that they've been going on and, and leading their division. And some of that has to do with youth, right? Like Ellie De La Cruz, I don't know how fully he was baked into some of the projections that uh, that people had. Like we knew he was a really good prospect, but we didn't know he would be this good. And then there's another factor there, which is, and you alluded to that, Adi, with the idea that on a single year, there's a lot of noise. I think there's some noise around like the luck of who's been good or bad. Like if you look at a team like the Reds, there's still, if you look at base runs, which is this measurement of sort of a team's true run scored and allowed, if you take away sequencing luck and you take away some of the other Babbitt luck and things like that. Uh, they've still actually been one of the worst teams deep down. They've just won more than you would expect. They've gotten perhaps lucky or perhaps they, you know, have some some ways to mitigate that on the margins. But I do think there's an element of that as well. We saw a team like the Pirates come out really hot early in the season. They've cooled off considerably since then, but it was kind of smoke and mirrors, right? You know, it was they were playing above the um, talent level. The Marlins are another team where I think they're like a 500 true talent team. I don't think they're a 570 true talent team. So this year, I think we're seeing maybe it's just by coincidence, we're seeing a number of these teams that are sort of not expected to be good maybe their underlying numbers are not actually really that good but they have pretty good records at least halfway through the season because stuff can happen halfway through an MLB season and so those are teams that I expect might actually fall off uh, as, as we go into the second half well we only have about two or three minutes left Neil but I thought if we're going to talk about Otani we might as well let the person who's been talking about Otani for the last I don't know two plus years ask the question so Shane it's no always- no 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 hold on a second he's been t- 
talking about Itani when he was in Japan. You you go way back. That's oh, yeah, true. Yeah, yeah no, Good, no, fair, I, I, fair point. I, I obviously saw all this coming. Uh, very much so. <laughs> yeah. Actually, Neil, I mean, yeah, I guess in terms of a quick question, I, I could babble on uh, fun Otani facts for the day. But what would you what do you think if Otani does hit free agency after this season, what kind of AAV or like what kind of contract would he get? Because he's, you know, he's basically a top five hitter and a top 15 pitcher right now. Yeah. I mean- and obviously we've never seen something like that in one person. Right. It really kind of blows up the curve for anything that we've seen so far. So I have to think he would become the highest paid, you know, on a average or maybe even a total basis because he's still, you know, he's 28. Maybe that's like not as young as some of these mega contracts that we've seen for some of the guys on the younger side. But we're talking about a guy that kind of reliably, I mean, it sounds crazy, but when you add up his batting and his pitching value, he's like a reliable 10 war player, which is insane. Like, I don't, I don't think we've seen that. And maybe you could say, well, you know, the pitching is always like one injury away from being a non-factor. And so that maybe that you regress that part of the war more to the mean and, and take his value down by a peg, but that still would put him in the neighborhood of like Mike Trout's average, you know, yearly or when he was still playing like Mike Trout, he's kind of fallen off um, a little bit in, in the past couple of years. So if that's the benchmark and he, you know, signed the biggest contract uh, a couple of years ago, then we're talking about a guy that could exceed that and probably should exceed that. And I, I just don't know, you know, the angels are one of the intriguing stories of the season so far as well, because they're actually winning, which has not been the case throughout the Otani era or the trout Otani era for the most part. And yet still, because of the way that there's this sort of top heaviness and things piling up and the Rangers are in that division and, and playing unexpectedly well, they still only have a 32% chance of making the playoffs. If you look at an average of fangraphs and baseball reference playoff odds so it's like they could win the most wins that they'd had since early in the Mike Trout era and yet still probably more likely to not miss the playoffs and that would lead to Otani leaving uh, most likely because a player like him wants to be on that postseason stage and deserves to be on that postseason stage so it's like a really weird confluence of things where it's like the Angels just still can't win even when they're winning they can't win. Just to throw out one more piece of fact, I think Trout would be younger with his contract than Otani. At the time of signing? At the time of his free agency, just to show you how young, and he's already starting to fall off. 28th peak, quick people, 28th peak. And Otani's 28 this year. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And again, according to many people, he's having his best season yet. And um, that that's truly amazing because I, I it's not obvious to me he's at his peak yet. And maybe he will peak later because he hasn't played as many you know MLB seasons as other people. We shall see. Well, Neil, we'd like to thank you, as always, for being our fifth host today, fourth host here on Morton Moneyball. That's been Neil Payne. You can read his work on his Substack. You can also follow him on Twitter at Neil underscore Payne. Neil, thank you for joining us here on Morton Moneyball. Thanks for having me, guys, as always. Here we are with our second guest in the second half of Wharton Moneyball. Uh, we're joined by a longtime guest of the show, Seth Partnow. Seth is the director of North American Sports at StatsBomb. He also writes at The Athletic. And we've talked about his book many times, uh, The Midrange Theory. Prior to that, he was the director of basketball research for the Milwaukee Bucks. Seth, uh, welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Uh, thanks for having me again. It's always fun to be here. Well, Adi, uh, Shane, and myself, we're definitely looking forward to talking to you. Obviously, I think the big deal since we last spoke to you is, of course, Victor Wembanyama. So how do you project him? My concern, let's say to me, am I wrong to say maybe the worst he'll be is Ralph Sampson and the best he'll be is some combination of, I don't even know, I mean, Kevin Durant, Maybe some combination of Rudy Gobert, some combination of, I don't know, name another, a bunch of offensive defensive players. How do you see Wembenyama projecting in the NBA? And, and what are your thoughts about how to even do it? Uh, I mean, it's an obviously a great question to start. I will say that uh, um, I'm very, I get very nervous around the, he will be at least dot, 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 because there's, I, I, I don't know how to you, you'd even model the percentage, but call it 10%. There's a 10% stuff happens. Uh, stuff is not the word I usually use there. Uh, for, for any draft prospect, there's no such thing as can't miss. He could get hurt. He could not be that good. He could decide he doesn't like basketball. He, all these different things can happen. We've seen it time and time again. 
stuff happens. So um, now, so so Ralph and Ralph Sampson had a decent NBA career, but then got hurt. Right. Um, so that's certainly a low end uh, outcome for him. Um, the high end, you know, you can you can go crazy with flights of fancy. Uh, Richard Jefferson from ESPN got um, got in some hot water earlier this year when he was opining that uh, Wembenyama is a better prospect than LeBron James was as a prospect. I'm not sure I agree with that, but it's a colorable argument. If if we're talking about the the short list of best prospects of my basketball life, lifetime, it's probably Shaq, LeBron, Tim Duncan, Wembenyama, and maybe pick uh, pick one or two others. It, it, like that's the that's the the the, uh, uh, the the company we're talking about now. Uh, of course, LeBron hit like the 90th, 95th percentile outcome of him himself as a prospect. So saying that he's comparable as a prospect doesn't in any way put him on the, the same pathway as well. He's going to be the NBA's all-time leading scorer someday. Um, all of which is me filibustering, but to say, I don't know. Uh, like modeling him is, you know, first of all, how many seven five guys are there? There's not a ton of translation from the French League. There's not a ton of translation from kind of mid-tier of the French League to, to the NBA. Um, and it's a pretty unique skill set. So I, I, well, let me ask you I wouldn't a, even know how to go about it. <laughs> well, let me ask you a very specific question. So, you know, I grew up as a kid or a kid as a young man in uh, New York City. Well, I grew up in New York uh, watching Patrick Ewing getting frustrated that, you know, we had a seven foot center who was basically at the end of his career, maybe the back half of his career, a jump shooter. And I don't want a seven foot jump shooter. I don't want a seven foot five Wembenyama. I mean, right now, if I read it right, he weighs 220. I don't want to say, you know, how much the three of us as hosts on this show weigh, but some of us here are close enough to 220 and none of us are here a seven foot five. So my comment is, if that's what he is until he can bulk up, like, do you ever want a seven foot five jump shooter? Uh, I mean, it depends on the jump shot to some degree. Um, and I think he's probably, uh, it's not just the fact that he's a, a shooter. Uh, it is, he can also put the ball on the floor. He can pass, he can make plays facing the basket. So even if it comes in a seven, five body, it is a skill set of a, of a traditionally of a, of a smaller player um, in terms of wanting him to bulk up. I think that's part of where the stuff happens comes in. Uh, you know, guys that large, the kinetic chain is long, and things and minor things that go wrong uh, can lead to big problems. Now, an interesting aspect of him is that his team has really started doing a lot of the sort of um, uh, prophylactic kind of stretching and ankle flexibility and and things like that uh, before he even has injuries to kind of help. Uh, nurse what is a vulnerable body through the rigors of a professional basketball career. It, are you going to want him to get stronger? Yes. Are you going to want him to get up to like 250, 260? That's, that's a, you know, it's that's a, a lot long of, way. That's a lot of, that's a lot of force, you know, that's a, on, on, you know, it's, it's uh, like his, he's, he's very, he's himself very worried about his feet because that's, you know, you look at where a lot of these, the, 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 the really all players break down, uh, whether it's Yao Ming, whether uh, Ralph Sampson, I believe, uh, had foot issues. And that's right. Greg know, Oden, you know, yeah. uh, you know, Joel Embiid has foot issues. You know, these these big men have that they do. And so the more weight you're, you're having land on that, the, the problem now from his game. I mean, it's you, I mean, it's interesting. You mentioned that like Durant on the offensive end and Gobert on the defensive end. Because that's a little bit what sort of the the, the premise is. Um, maybe he's a more mobile player than Rudy Gobert is, but he's not. Uh, Gobert is is very big and strong, so maybe do it slightly differently. But uh, a player who can space the floor on offense and protect the rim at an elite level on defense, you do that well, you're easily an all star, and maybe more than that, depending on. How sort of the ancillary skills. Pop. Yeah, I think. Yeah, I, I I think Seth and we're talking to Seth Part now. Seth is director of North American Sports at Statsbomb. Um, one of the things Seth that you just brought up is 
you know, given the projections for him, you know, it would almost be like if all he ends up as being an all-star, I think most people say, wow, that's it. I mean, that's not the greatest prospect since LeBron James that he's an all-star. And I think you're pointing out is, you know, I'll use the statistical term, predicting the far right tail in the distribution is really damn hard. You mentioned a lot of reasons. We don't have a lot of seven foot five players. We don't have a lot of people coming from the French league. We don't have a lot of people with his skill set and size. S happens. There's all kinds of things that make it a hard prediction problem. We're not trying to predict, is he going to be a good player? I think if he stays healthy, he's going to be a very good NBA player. But is he going to be a great NBA player, an all-time great NBA player? Very different prediction task. Would you agree? I I, th- I would almost go so far as to say it's an impossible predi- uh, uh, prediction task, just because if you look at the players who have been like that, that you know, transcendent talent in the NBA, how many of them fit into any pre-existing mold? It's Certainly like they've. Uh, Michael Jordan, no. I just finished, yeah. came from watching the air. He was the third pick in the draft, and people expected him to be very good, but not the all-time greatest. Yeah, yeah no, and it's, and so all of these players who are, you know, you look at the like some of the top players in the NBA today, they have created our things. Whether it's Steph Curry, whether it's Nikola Jokic, whether it's LeBron, I mean, maybe the closest we've come to someone following was Kobe Bryant, like almost um, intentionally mimicking Michael Jordan down to some mannerisms as well. But other than that, like these are these, these, these top whatever percent of players are largely sui generis. And so how do you model that? <laughs> you know, yeah, there's, there's a lot of you know, like unique doesn't always mean good, but for that level of greatness, it does have to be unique. And I don't, I don't know how you, how you go about like uh, that modeling task without well, hopelessly overfitting your data yeah, I mean, I think what you're saying is, is that no forecast would predict the upside that people are talking about in the press. Yeah, A good forecaster cannot make that as a credible estimate a median or mean of their prediction equation. It's got to regress fairly substantially down, down to the mean, which doesn't mean he's not the first pick in the draft. It just means that what we're talking about is, on, is with probably substantial probability, of which we don't really know how to properly evaluate that total, uh, not going to be a pan out. He's going to most likely be a very good NBA player, less likely, but still possible. A great NBA player and low probability, a one of the greatest. Simple. I don't know how else to say it. Yeah, but a well, much higher pretty probability. Clear. Yeah. <laughs> I, I was going to say a much higher probability than than the I would even say the median first overall pick. I think that's who ah, we're that's talking good. about. When yeah. we're talking about like yeah. the like the transcendence as a prospect, yeah, fine. He's got a he's got a. I'm just going to make a number up here. He's got a five percent chance of being sort of an inner circle Hall of Famer, like a top twenty, top fifteen all time player. Uh, I th- I would think that the I'm just I'm I'm spitballing about distributions, but no, yeah, I'm, but taking the, I'm taking the under on that one. Well, but oh God. <laughs> but but I would say that the the average you know. First overall pick is a no, no. I like what you said there. I think he's got yeah. better than the median number one overall pick. Yeah, I think that's fair to say. Let me so yeah. let me move off a little bit. So we only have about three or four minutes left with you, Seth. Let me ask you what you thought about some other big news that happened, which was the Bradley Beal and Chris Paul trade. What did you think about that? Does you know how much does does Golden State get any better? Does Phoenix get any better? How do you see each of those teams now? Um. I think that there's. Uh, I'll start with Golden State. I think that was a a sensible trade insofar as uh, the last playoffs were not kind, not just to Jordan Poole, but to Jordan Poole's player archetype. And for a team that's already going to be pretty expensive and up against sort of the uh, mechanical elements of the new CBA, which which hurt high spending teams, um, moving off of that money and that future money and getting a player who might be more useful for them in the short term in terms of, hey, can we have good offense when Steph Curry is off the floor? That's the, the, the answer largely has been a no for the bulk of Curry's like, like prime career with the Warriors. Um, it, it is a Chris Paul kind of floor general thing still enough to get you to at least tread water in those minutes? Um, so that's one side. I, from, I hated uh, the acquisition of, of Bradley Beal for Phoenix. Um, I think it 
um it's a it's it's a it's almost a fantasy gm trade in that it's like oh well we 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 got these 30 points a game so we just drop them in and add them as there's only one basketball as i always say seth yeah and i actually i actually did some research on this uh a couple weeks ago of when the trade happened and for like when you throw these high usage combinations together where it's kevin durant brad beal and devin booker these very high usage trios together on average, each of the players loses about two and a half points of usage. Now, that might be distributed some other way, but for a player whose primary value is being able to soak a lot of possessions at decent efficiency, and now you're using him for fewer possessions, or he's taking away possessions from guys who are better than him. Like, where is the... the, the, the it's not that he's a bad player who won't be good for them. It's that he is a worse player for them than he would be for a team that needed his skill set more. And they use literally every mechanism of team building they have available to themselves to acquire him. So they have three really good players, another guy in DeAndre Ayton, who they very clearly don't want around anymore and are not getting good trade offers because they've made it clear they don't want him around anymore. And you have to build a team uh, where if you're trying to win a championship, we've seen the playoffs be somewhat uh, weak link focused. You've got like one to two weak links on the floor at all time and three high usage stars who all tend to get injured. How are you supposed to get to the playoffs healthy and then navigate through the two month marathon that we just saw as the playoffs? Uh, and I will, I yield the rest of my time as I gavel <laughs> myself out. Well, <laughs> I, I, we want to thank you, Seth, for joining us here on Wharton Moneyball today. I like your point that every possession he has, you, you didn't say it this way, but I'll say it. You basically said this, every possession he has is one less Durant and Booker have the ball. And we could debate whether that's a good thing for the Phoenix Suns. Um, but thank you again. Uh, this We've been joined by Seth Partnow. Seth's director of North American Sports at Statsbomb. He writes for The Athletic. He also, you should check out his book, The Mid-Range Theory. So Seth, thank you again for joining us here on Wharton Moneyball. Thanks a lot, guys. So, guys, this has been the one hour of Wharton Moneyball. I'd like to thank our producer, Matt Datz, and as always, our associate producer and sound engineer, Dion Simpkins. On behalf of myself, Eric Bradlow, my colleague, Professor Adi Weiner, and Shane Jensen, we'd like to, we hope you enjoyed our show. Uh, between now and next week, enjoy your sports, enjoy your statistics. We will see you next week here on Wharton Moneyball. Moneyball.